I'm with the jazz legend Reggie Workman. Hey, it's great to be here. Great to be here with you. Thanks for coming and thanks for being a part of this great effort. Yeah, man. So I I spent the last week since this got set up, I made a, a Spotify playlist. I know that's that's not the most musician-friendly way to listen to things, but I made a, a playlist just so I could try to get a sense of things in your discography that I haven't heard. So it turned out to be like 225 hours or <laughs> some incredible amount of music. And uh, I, I've just been loving it, man. Let, give me an example of where you are, what you were listening to. All right. There was a lot of Maul Waldron. Mm. There was Sonny Fortune. There was Elvin Jones. There was Alice Coltrane. There was John Coltrane. There was Marion Brown. Mm. There was Roy Ayers. There was Herbie Mann. Um, there's things, uh, Pharaoh Sanders, Karma. Um, yeah, the things, uh, Lee Morgan. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so then my, my head's spinning with questions, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you, you have something to say right off the hey, bat. That, that's part of my life. You know, I, I am very fortunate to have been uh, called upon to do projects and collaborate with all those great people. And uh, I feel blessed. And, uh, you know, the creator laid that task on me and laid that opportunity on me. And it's been fruitful. Yeah, the, the creator had a master plan. Exactly. So one one question that I, I just wanted to pick your brain about is uh, something that Phil Schapp, who you're probably aware of. Of course. He, he said, you know, we don't live in the times where you can talk to the first cellist who played uh, with Beethoven when he had a symphony. But you can talk to someone like you who played with Roy Haynes or who played on Pharaoh Sanders' Karma or whatever. Speaking of Roy Haynes, I yeah. would say happy birthday to him, his 94th birthday last night. Oh, yeah. And, and the band, and he sounded good. He was in great spirits. That was a good experience. He is an yeah, amazing I'm glad guy. you brought his name up. Yeah. So if you want to just set the record straight somehow, what... What do you think, what what might people get wrong in a hundred years, or even now, about what was happening in this uh, renaissance of music that you were taking part of? Well, I don't know whether they'll get it wrong or not. Uh, in a hundred years, they may have looked into it well, thoroughly enough to know what was happening, how important it is as far as social involvement uh, is concerned, as far as the spiritual involvement was concerned, and artistic involvement. Each one of us uh, got involved with the music at a time when the world was changing, when uh, species were evolving, uh, generations were waking up, uh, revolution was happening, and uh, folks were becoming aware of what was real and correct for them to live by. Uh, so in a hundred years from now, I don't think the history will be erased if uh, enough of us are awake enough and active enough to keep it on the planet and keep it within the reach of the younger generations coming along. Uh, the history was that uh, 
you know, back from the days of old folk music, blues, etc. Out of all our social experiences, whether yin or yang, uh, we became uh, artists as we continued to be artists as we were in the centuries before our time. And uh, we just evolved and continued that because I think that is the DNA in which we, to which we were born. And uh, those things are fact, and they, those realities in 100 years from now, people who are intelligent, wise, and curious enough will look into it and find out why it happened, how it happened, and is it, how it's still evolving. And that's what we've all been about. And during the time when I uh, became involved with the arts, there were many people around me who were doing and being involved the same way, being involved the same way. And and uh, my predecessors were involved before me, therefore they threw me uh, information that allowed me to grow from one point to the next with their help and mentorship. Who were who the people who were giving you mentorship particularly? Well, uh, I think many of them, if I should name them, you wouldn't know those. My community was folks like you mentioned before. Uh, 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 my my predecessors, my names, my my neighbors, uh, the Van family, Archie Shep, uh, Lee Morgan, the Booth family, uh, uh, Odin Pope, uh, uh, Tommy Munro, Owen Marshall. Uh, I could just go uh, sure. Johnny Splon, uh, John Coltrane, the Massey family. Wilbur Campbell, Charlie Rice, uh, I mean, just everybody who came along before me, who came, who reached out to me and said, hey, Reggie, come over and do this gig with me. Uh, hey, Reggie, go, let's go to this concert. Hey, Reggie, let's go downtown where Clifford Brown is going to be doing a concert on Saturday afternoon with Max Roach, and you can go because they don't serve alcohol in the music center where it's going to be. And... Uh, that's the way we grew. Uh, you go to school and you ask for an instrument. They didn't have an instrument, so they finally got an instrument, which was a bass, well, which was a tuba and a euphonium. That's where it started. Uh, and then no bass. And then finally my cousin said, well, listen to this sound. And uh, that's Charlie Biddle, who also stood me up and beside the bass and said, play this instrument and do it this way. And I like the sound, and I look for that, so I grew in that direction. And here we are today, still growing in that direction. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to get to sit down with McCoy Tyner once, and he he talked about Philadelphia, and he really described it as a real community, as, as a place where the neighbors knew each other and everybody was part of uh raising each other up. It, was that your experience? Same thing. And uh, community was not just a, a few blocks of people. Community was the whole city where every area had a particular sound of, of, of musician who, who would play together, not play together, make music together and perform 
uh, a certain way and work on certain things. Then you go to another part of Philadelphia, you have another group of musicians. So, and you have South Philadelphia, West Philly, where McCoy Tyner was. You have Germantown, North Philly, where I was. You have Tiago, where Lee Morgan was. You have North Philly, where Charlie Rice and and uh, Benny Golson and, and all of them were with John Coltrane and his family and friends were. It was, That was our community. And that community extended itself into the suburbs like Norristown, where Jimmy Smith's father used to play, and then we used to have to go and perform with, with them and for them. And uh, uh, you have Camden just across the bridge where a lot of musicians where Buster Williams happens to be from. Uh, you, you know, that was our community, and the music grew, and the music was a part of our evolution and not only our evolution but the people's evolution as well you couldn't have a party you couldn't celebrate your birthday or have a cabaret without having music in those days that was the way we grew the way we rolled and uh, you know on the weekend there was a concert at the Earl Theater which would bring Charlie Parker in and uh, if you were smart, you'd be able to buy it. If you were wealthy, you'd buy a ticket if you were well to do. Or if you couldn't, you would find a way to befriend somebody who would help you to get in. Or you'd stand by the door outside and listen. You know, all those things. Herb Gordy, uh, who was doing uh, arrangements for the theater when Charlie Parker would come to town. Uh, you know, he lived right down the street from Archie Shep. Uh, and the musicians were all over Philadelphia, and they all knew one another. That's why McCoy, I think, said that was a community. And uh, we we grew together. Yeah. Do, do you remember your first time hearing Charlie Parker? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was a baby boy, and I couldn't get into the club. And uh, I used to have to, to go and stand by the door. And then uh, there was a kid, uh, Kid Happy was a bouncer at the club, and he would see Lee Morgan and I uh, or some of the other musicians and myself standing by, and he would say, come on, boy, come on in here. And he'd put us in the corner and sit a fruit punch in front of us to keep the waiter away. And, and we'd get a chance to hear some music. And uh, that's the way I heard several musicians as a young man. Uh, as a, as a, yeah, I wasn't a man, I was a man, young male. That I was like under 18, under the age to be going to clubs, uh, still in high school or junior high school. But I was able to take advantage of the music that was all around me. And that was a part of it. I, I would imagine seeing someone like him would have been like a revelation, like it's something something unheard. Was that how it hit you with him? And, and maybe were there other artists that, that, that just changed your whole worldview of, of what music could be? Yeah, well, you know, there, there were many other artists. Uh, there were, every one of them were important because at those uh, times and in those days, we didn't just listen to Charlie Parker because he was one of the great people who walked our way. Uh, but there were many great people who came along 
before and after, like the blues people, like the Ink Spots, like Nat King Cole, like uh, uh, Lionel Hampton, like uh, like every walk of life, every kind of music that we would listen to, we would have to understand it. We would have to know that this was a part of our being. This was a part of what we are made of, the cornerstones that we are standing on. Unfortunately, you know, the young people today, they don't have that experience. And I think that's one reason I can say we're glad now here to be at the new school where we can at least touch base with those young people and, and, and try to pass on to them some of the experiences that we have had, you know, and, and, and give them some of the value systems that we grew up with or grew along with and, and brought us to this point. And that's very valuable for young people who did not experience that. Fortunately, they have YouTube. They can click on every person they want to hear and know what it sounds like, know who did what, when, because the Internet, the, 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 the modern technology has given them another, another way of evolving, unlike the way that we evolved. But they need to know that there were things that happened before you click on the Internet that was a part of life, a part of the very existence that we had to live through, uh, that gave us a certain timbre that you don't get from clicking your tell your to your computer on. Uh, and clicking your computer on is certainly valuable and a part of what we have to deal with. So, uh, what the young people have to deal with today. And uh, in order for them to understand where that image that comes to the computer when they click it on comes from, they have to be in touch with their history. They have to read. They have to uh, conceive uh, what happened or we they have to be in touch with us we you who can pass on some of the knowledge to them yeah you know one one thing that um, Randy Weston said when I was lucky enough to speak with him he said you know in Africa but he was talking about Africa he's also talking about maybe Brooklyn back in the day it didn't take the New York Times to tell you if someone was good or bad it was it was a relationship with the audience and it, it sounds to me like th whether it was a party or in a church or in a club what was considered good wasn't just decided by a critic and and the people on the bandstand it was it was the whole community was kind of deciding on on those musical values is that is that mm -hmm. accurate it's quite accurate uh, the Craigs happened because of what the com what the music and the community had created and revered. And then the Craigs came along and said, uh, there's something going on here. We want to know about it. We want to write about it. And then it got to the point where the critics were uh, dictating what's yin and what's yang, which is the way of the world. Yeah. Well, before we go down that path, because um, you could you could linger on that for a while, I, I'm curious what, what was the what was like uh, the family business when you're when you're growing up. What, what kind of what were your folks doing? Uh, well, 
My father was, uh, first thing, he was a, a bridge uh, working for a construction company, working building bridges. And uh, eventually he stopped doing that after a bridge collapsed and he was injured. Uh, he, stopped, he recovered from that and decided to become a chef. Uh, and he he opened his own own restaurant where we used to have as little tots we used to travel many miles on the bus or subway or train and and go to the shop where he opened his restaurant in West Philadelphia out near where McCoy lived and uh, work at the restaurant learn how to do the business with him uh, learn how not to be in the neighborhood where there were a lot of things happening that could have steered us the wrong way or uh, keeping the family together, keeping in touch with one another, keeping in touch with our parents, keeping in touch with us and so forth. My mom was, was uh, she was a, a wife and mother of 15 children. So you wow. can imagine how many hours she had to do whatever she had to do. And uh, what what happened as a result of that, like she evolved and decided, well, I've been raising the family up to this point. I've done what I can do. I want to do something else. So she became a nurse. And uh, she went to school and decided to evolve and she became a, a nurse and started working as a nurse and uh, began to do that. Meanwhile, my father moved from his business because for whatever reason, whether it was the rent or whatever, he moved to a hotel where he was offered more money and he was, that was his job, his switch for spanking the wolf, which we all must have. And uh, that's, that's the way the family evolved. And then meanwhile, the children or the uh, species of spouses are, are growing into themselves, going their own way you know, going to do the things that were important to them. Each one had a special experience, which it would take me too long to tell you about all sure, those Sure, yeah, you take 15 times <laughs> yeah. anything. It turns well, into only 13 of us lived. Oh, so. okay. So when, when you, you, you mentioned it, that it was in school that, you, that the bass entered your life, or when, when did, like, formal training come in? Because it sounded like music was everywhere. Mm -hmm. So so when did when did uh, when did that come in? Well, I, as I said before, the bass the bass came in. Uh, I was just, my parents recognized some talent or recognized uh, the importance of music, and would give me piano lessons on Saturday where I'd have to travel downtown and go to my teacher and practice and after school and so forth. And it was the piano at first. Uh, all music, but uh, still the piano was the foundation. And then later on, when uh, my cousin began to rehearse his band at uh, at my house, uh, and my mom decided that she was going to, or my parents decided they were going to get a spinet to be at the house and uh, for for my cousin to rehearse here, for me to practice and so forth, and so I wouldn't have to go down to a relative's house in North Philadelphia to practice and then come all the way up to Germantown to go home. Uh, this cousin, uh, Charlie Biddle, came 
to me and said, uh, listen, boy, stand up on this chair and, and, and put the bow in my hand and told me to touch the, the instrument and said, this is the way you do it. How do you like that? And so I don't think he really realized the importance of what he was doing uh, as far as I was concerned because that experience and that sound and that that vibration of the instrument and coupled with what I was watching him do made me gravitate to the bass violin. Yeah. You knew it. You knew it. It, That was when you... At first... As a a child, a young man, a young person, I I realized there was something here that I would like to explore, so I continued to do that. You certainly did. And so I'm so curious... well, one thing you, you said at the very beginning of the conversation, you know, you said it's important people understand the music and the history and the spirituality. And I think that the spirituality is is probably the hardest to put into words, but might be the easiest to, to slip from people's understanding. So some people have said that, you know, Count Basie was spiritual and Duke Ellington was spiritual but then it wasn't always overt in the same way as maybe John Coltrane made it clear or maybe Yusef Latif. I'm not sure about I'm just riffing here, but what what kind of what what did 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 people talk about what we can hear as such a spiritual element in in this music? Was that discussed? Was that something that people spoke about or was it unspoken uh both it was spoken in some cases uh, where people decided they would explore it and it was lived mm-hmm. more so than spoken about it was it was our life it was our evolution and our chosen voice uh the music uh, which became uh, what we know as today uh was was the vehicle that we chose to get whatever thought and whatever we had to offer creatively across was the vehicle to get it uh, compiled, composed, and out to the world. And I think each one of us that you can name had a particular mission, uh, whether written or known or unknown. Uh, it, It was something that was in the air universally. And uh, if you go back all the way back into the days of Confucius, you find that the same thing happened with every artist. And you go back to Prokofiev, Mozart, Bartok, uh, Beethoven, uh, Shakespeare, writer, uh, sculptors, uh, scientists, uh, who Einstein, uh, anybody who created something that was credible in the world had a mission, and that mission was pursued because they were ordained to do that by the net forces that are beyond our control. And I think that that goes for all of us and all of our students who have chosen to be here, and a lot of the parents come here. I have met a lot of the parents who say, well, why should my child study jazz? Why is it that, how, are the, how is he going to raise a family? How is he going to make money? That's a parent who understands what the world is 
how the world is considering jazz. That's a parent who understands that the world or the people are not supporting the, the music, the arts, the way they should, could, as they have over the centuries, over the years. Uh, many people don't understand that a lot of our our classic uh, masters and composers of the days were supported by the governments, by the hierarchy, uh, by the people in power who knew the power of the music or the science of sound and how it affected their community and, they, and how it affected their social situation. So they would support it and and uh, it was supported in such a way that they could take it full advantage of it and understand it. Today, it's a little bit different. We still have support for it, but we don't have the magnitude of support, and we don't have the value system the same way as it has been many centuries ago. And we would like to know that it can be, it can get back to that. It can be that, and there are many people who understand that this is important. So uh, one thing I noticed listening to those hundred hours or, or breezing through them of, of these uh, different recordings is a lot of guys chose you who swing really hard, like Ma Waldron or, or Art Blakey or these guys where there's like a certain intensity that, that that can be kept and sustained for a long time. Do you, is there a technique musically or otherwise that you think uh, helps you and these other artists, uh, like like an Art Blakey or Ed Blackwell, to just hold that intensity and power of, of swing? Uh, it's a hard question to answer because each one of the names you mentioned mm -hmm. swing a different way, have a certain value, a different value. And uh, as a basis, <clears throat> one of the, the things that I have had to learn to do is know those values and know how that swing relates and know what's needed for that particular uh, dialogue. Uh I think each one of them is going to be different. And if you have listened to that much of the music, you know that each situation is different. Each feeling is different. And the person who is the organizer of that moment, or we might call it the, the leader of the project, or the organizer of the project, has a particular thing that they want to accomplish. And they have to think, who is going to best help me to accomplish my plan? And uh, many times I was chosen. Many times I was not. And I understand the times that uh, people make decisions, uh, it's according to their whim and according to what they want to accomplish. And uh, looking back over the advantage of having a recording or putting something down into the annals of history is that you can look back and evaluate, you know, and uh, all of those people who you dealt with, you're talking about different style of swing, it's interesting to look at it. I remember when we used to sit around and listen to musicians and listen to the records and listen to compositions that had been put down by different people, we would discuss them and we would learn to recognize them by sound and we would learn to characteristic uh, 
of of uh, each person, each musician, or whatever they did, uh, each vocalist who came to the podium, and uh, we would in so recognizing and understanding it, it helped us to shape whatever we became. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying, but I still think that some people just the the the, the raw power it takes something this this level of concentration or something that is consistent whether you're playing with whether you're playing with Roy Haynes or or Elvin Jones it, there seems to be um a, a level of focus or something that must remain consistent mm-hmm. um so is there something that you could touch upon that that puts these these artists who who are now icons who, who, that separates a really transcendent artist from just a mere great artist is there is there have you noticed a certain quality amongst uh, these 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 giants yeah that's a big question and and I would like to ask you to let me take a break yeah let's go I hear some music because cool. one of the students is doing a recital right now yeah, and i promised him that i would okay. at least show my face sounds there. good all right and cool. uh maybe we can continue yeah for sure that when we come back i know it's been a long day yes uh, oh, every day is a long <laughs> day man well so we're we're we, 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 yeah we were, i was just asking about um <clears throat> kind of that there's certain musicians who who kind of tr- transcend their instrument transcend they you know and then there's other people I'll put myself in that lower category of you know and they're not going to make statues out of me for my guitar playing at least you know so yeah what can you put your finger on that thing that 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 is shared from uh Yusef Latif to Archie Shep to uh, you know Charlie Parker and all these other people you've you've witnessed or played with. You know, on the well, band. I haven't played with Charlie. I Parker. know you haven't played with him, but yeah. Uh, it, but you know there are many other greats that I've been fortunate enough to to, to uh, make music with, and uh, I think because we're all on the same plane of thought, uh, and uh, we all are having similar values systems. I think that that that's the thing that's, that's bringing us together, mm. you know, because you don't go out at a certain point in your professional career, you don't go out knocking on people's door saying, give me a job. Uh, people come to you because they know who you are. People come to you because they heard you or they examine you or they, they heard of you and they look to see if you are the person who has the right vocabulary for the dialogue. Uh, and that's the beauty of, of this profession, professional music, uh, that it it plays, it does its own orchestration, you know, because of who you are and, and, and what message comes through you. You know, and I think that all of the people who are on that level understand it and uh, relate to that reality. So I feel fortunate to be a part of that, you know. Yeah, I, I kind of, there are these people that I would, I'd be angry at myself if I didn't 
get a taste of your knowledge from from being around them and so maybe you could just tell me a little about the essence of one of some of these people or, or something you learned from them like someone like Alice Coltrane well you're starting at the top <laughs> basically really because she was one one special woman she was one special person and uh, you know the music that we made when you mentioned records you didn't mention uh, Transfiguration yeah beautiful record but I hope that you heard that I did yes and uh, there was something special that happened at that time and uh, the spirits were very high and what she did with the with the sound and she played the wordlister because she was able to make it sound like a soprano uh, she was able to do that and she was able to to sculpture that sound in such a way that nobody else has been able to do it but her and she has taught a lot of people I know she uh, has taught uh, Rada Botafacina who t uh, takes care of the Asaram in California and Alice gave her, uh, Toria gave her her harp and uh, taught her a lot about the music but nobody could do it like her. Uh, and and John recognized that, you know, when he was studying uh, harp, he, he, they were calling his music, it sounds like sheets of sound, like sheets of sound. They, they were not understanding the, the, the technique that he had with making these, uh, what they called sheets of sound, of, of dealing with that kind of sound from the saxophone, uh, making that kind of arpeggio do a certain type of thing within the music. And part of that came from his studying uh, uh, numerology and Hindu, uh, style of approach to sound, rhythm and sound. Uh, for studying the harp, he had a friend in Chicago who he used to go to to study harp. And uh, then Alice Arturia, who was in, in the church doing the gospel music, uh, when she, he and Arturia uh, got together, I think he, that's when he encouraged her or bought her the harp and encourage her to explore that sound. And the, out of that came something very special because uh, when you hear her deal with the piano, she deals with the sound of the piano the way that she was able to rot the sound of the harp. And there's something different there, something that uh, most people don't recognize. But I think that those who are open to exploration understand it yeah and that album i i felt that um sh while she was playing sometimes very much in, the, in that style of, of a free saxophone player at that same time while there's almost an a, a almost an abandon you can also feel the steadiness of like her spirit behind it is she's mm -hmm. so you, you you, you feel tranquility at the same time as you're hearing, you know, uh, such free ideas and, and different scales, different ideas. Was that reflective of kind of who she was as a person? Yeah, that was that was who she was. See, uh, there was a beautiful tranquility, but a, also a powerful strength that was present at the same time. 
And uh, I think that's when you when you reach a certain spiritual plane, I think that's something that you accomplish. That's something that you grow toward, you know, and it's something that all of us uh, relish. You know, we're happy when we reach that place. And, uh, you know, meditation sometimes gets us there. Practicing gets us there. Exercise gets us there. Different things get us there, uh, gets us to that particular place. That's different things that we do. Uh, sometimes it's just like sitting down to an enjoyable meal. And that meal might be the, the, the experience that you have in the world of people, you know, uh, that might be the knowledge that you get from communicating and creating a dial a spiritual dialogue with the people who you happen to be in contact with, and that you can appreciate, and you you learn to digest it, you learn to decipher decipher it, you learn to to recognize it, you learn to identify it and how it fits with your psyche and your ideology and so forth and again it turns out to be a beautiful mixture of of ideas and and energy and that's the kind of energy that was present with Turia that's the kind of energy that was present with John Coltrane that's the kind of energy that's been present with most of the people whom I've had the pleasure of dealing with even though each one of them approached it, came to it from a diff, through a different door. That energy is consistent because it's universal. And, and all of us who do all of these things that deal with universal law, I think, are coming from the same, from the same spiritual experience or spiritual direction. And there's presence is about and in the present moment is an essential thing of, of between having a meal that somehow takes you to a higher plane from the conversation or playing music with making, a great musician making, making music making music mm-hmm. so Eddie I mean since you were in his presence was there anything that John Coltrane particularly communicated to you overtly or not overtly about music that that stuck with you or even humanity? Well, well, most of the things that we talked about, he was not a very talkative person. He would talk about things that of the moment. And everything that he talked about, everything that he said, or that we said to one another was important and stuck and, and had a special place in my life. And he, he was responsible for a great part of my evolution. And... Uh, I'll ask you to digress with me for a minute because you talked you, your first question was about a certain kind of energy that comes from the different people that I've been in contact with and that is why I brought up Turia because those people who you mentioned uh, have that energy but you didn't mention Turia uh, you didn't because uh, somehow people don't think about her in 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 the light of being a, one of our special uh, spiritual uh, mentors uh, and people who were in our existence because she was living in the shadow of John. She was not the, as she was, we who knew 
no knew if she wasn't living in the saddle. She was living beside him. She was uh, one of his beautiful supporters over the years. Of course, his former wife was, was as well, but for different reasons and different times. And all of those experiences that we all have cause us to be who we are. But I wanted to be sure that we recognize uh, persons like Turia who came up with certain beautiful things like uh, we think about Aretha Franklin and we think about Marvin Gaye and we think about uh, Nina Simone and we think about the, the, all the vocalists, for example, who deal with the spoken word and, and the invocation of, of, the, of, the, of the word itself. You know, uh, that's another, another gift. That's another s language and another way of, of, of bringing a message through ourselves uh, from on high to the people who you are ordained to deliver it to, you know. And, and that's why I think you do what you do. You say you're a guitarist, and so that you know what sound is about. You know what, what's happening with uh, what, how you make the f people or the recipient feel when you make your music and and when you make your chords and when you make your intervals and your your things in music we all are doing the same thing and no matter whether we're speaking no matter whether we're graphic or visual artists and we're painting uh, i don't know if i have it here i went to a painting in at the national art gallery i was down there with 303 recently in washington at the national art gallery and they had uh, Oliver Lake, of course, is with Trio Three. Uh, part of he's a part of our trio, and then one of his hometown uh, uh, friends that he grew up with is a visual artist, and he paints. and He had a, a big exhibit of large works at the National Art Gallery, so that they had a panel discussion about that, how it grew out of the experience with Bag, and how Bag had uh, dancers. Uh, the body, that's another thing I didn't mention. I talk about the spoken word. I didn't talk about the movement. Uh, and the, the, the sculpture of, of, of materials and, and how you, this, uh, the signs and symbols. And that's another thing that, uh, that, that would take us another week to talk about that, the signs and symbols, uh, that we think we're reading words, but we're actually looking at symbols that the monks put together when they went up in the mountains and studied that. Uh, so we all, we all come to the same place, and all of our art and all of our effort and all of our creation and all of our knowledge uh, goes to the one you know it goes to the one the, the ultimate force that we are emanating from you know yeah yeah you know uh, I, I, I first of all for the record Alice is my, my goddess Alice Goldmortari yes. that's that's and especially for for those of us very involved with Indian classical music uh she's the reason a lot of people who were in jazz they heard that that tampura like myself mm -hmm. and he said there's something there there's something more you know and I actually just got back from India but I'm I'm, I'm still following that that mm -hmm. sound there 
Um, another person I was just wanted to get your take on because he's such an original thinker and, and being is Youssef Latif. Mm. I wonder if you could tell a little about what, what you gleaned from him musically or, or as a as a thinker. Yeah, yeah, he he was a very deep person as well, a very deep thinker, very deep spiritual individual, and uh, very different person from uh, a John Coltrane, but still the same kind of depth coming from uh, different coming through a different door. Uh, as I use that uh, example, uh, use of Latif. Uh, had his own way of doing things. He he was very prolific. He was one who liked to write things down and, and understand what makes uh, things work. And uh, when when I worked with him, I was fortunate enough to be with his group when he had uh, <clears throat> when he had James Black from New Orleans. When he had George Arvanitas, uh, when he had Mike Knock, Arvanitas from France, and Mike Knock from, uh, I think, New Zealand, I believe he was from, uh, and, and myself, and he put things together and did the way he approached the music, the way he approached the sound of, of his instruments, the way he dealt with his breath control, and 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 phrasing was something really special and unique unto himself. Nobody I can remember did it the way he did it, and uh, had a marvelous sense of humor. He had he was very, very different than many of the people who I had the opportunity to spend time with. Many years traveled a lot together. We were. Driving from New York to to the West Coast and stopping in Detroit, and uh, while we were fortunate, we had a, a just accident on the highway while we were in a station wagon driving to Detroit, and but we all survived it. Everything came along okay. We went to California during the time of the riots and and the racism that was going on now there where people were shooting at the cars as they passed and uh, our job was canceled because of that because of uh, so many racist problems in California area uh, we had to stay spend an uh, extra week or two in the hotel waiting for things to calm down before we went to Howard Rumsey's Lighthouse to finish the gig, and I think that was some of that was recorded. That's a record, yeah, I believe it was. I don't know whether it was ever commercially produced, but that those are things that happened uh, at that time. And uh, it's, it's just just uh, so many experiences, man. Each time you come up with a question, it brings <laughs> yeah. another another era of my life that I try yeah, to I mean, recall. I mean, it seems like a totally different type character would be Lee Morgan. Yeah, well, he was a different character. He was a different type character, much younger, uh, much also, also given the gift of a great talent from a very young age. And a lot of people didn't know he was really great 
and and talented before the jazz world ever recognized him. And he was at Mass Bomb and he was going to school and dealing with the orchestras and all. He was nailing all those parts and and uniquely making all that music way back then along with Kenny Rogers. And he and Kenny Rogers went to Mass Bomb together. That's Kenny Rogers, the Philadelphia alto saxophone player. And Lee brought him in on a couple of record dates, I think. Kenny's still alive. Uh, he lost his, uh, he's born again. I think he lost his limbs, but he's still alive. I talked to him once in a while. <clears throat> but Lee Morgan, he was a person, had a very, very, another big sense of humor, a very unique and egotistical, brash young man from a very special family. Uh, his older sister, and I think her name was Mabel, and my older sister Gloria went to school together and were singing in the same high school choir, things like that. Uh, uh, the music, Some of the musicians who I grew with uh, lived right around the corner from Lee. We used to hang out at his place in Tioga and meet, and that's some of the time that we used to sit down in his parlor and study the music and listen to people and criticize and critique and discuss characteristics of musicians, which is something that doesn't happen today. We don't have those listening sessions today in schools, which I'm always trying to encourage that we need. Uh, we used to have a library here, but that library seemed to dissipate dissipated and disappeared. People took the projects home. Uh, uh, people didn't understand the value of keeping that stuff uh, present. Well, now it's a possibility of digitizing those things to keep it so that they, to make it so that it can be available to the world uh, instead of having a vinyl thing that sits there and, and uh, may get destroyed. You digitize it and put it on the net and put it on this system so that someone can tune into it. They may not get all of the nuance uh, because it's digitized, uh, but they can at least have access to it. And that's what I was talking about earlier when I said these students don't realize how important and how fortunate they are that they can put their fingers on all of this music and all these experiences. <clears throat> no, I mean, still... When you have one record, you really know it. And when you have every record ever recorded, you might not you might not wear out the needle, so to speak, in the same way. Like, what do you remember your first records that you got your hands on? Uh, so to speak, uh, they you know the first records I got my hands were seventy eights, heavy 78s yeah, and, uh, of, of all the great people because first of all my father had a restaurant with a, one of those uh, record players you put a nickel in and you play right, right. put a quarter in and you play five tunes you put a nickel in Jukebox. and you play one yeah. Yeah. and uh, the, a lot of those things when the person came to change the records we were able to acquire them a lot of those things we were able to go to the store because we heard it on the jukebox, we were able to go to the store and buy it because it was a favorite or something we felt we needed to learn. So that goes all the way, my first records go all the way back there. 
and not many of them are still preserved as you grow and move around from place to place hundreds of records get and, lost and what 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 was the genres well the genre was genre was all kinds of music of you know rhythm and blues and gospel and uh some classical uh mostly popular uh uh theater tracks radio shows comedy shows oh, yeah Bob and Ray, did you know those guys? Bob and Ray. <laughs> they, were, they were radio comedy comedians. Ray, no. Uh, no, I don't remember okay, okay. exactly yeah. Bob and Ray. Okay. But but maybe I do. Maybe yeah. it's just not coming <laughs> Or before to your me time, now. maybe. <laughs> I don't know whether it was or not. It could have been uh, because uh, they don't stand out in front of me. Yeah. Um, at this point, I can't always recall all the details that sure. were there. And, you know, sometimes you say something and it sparks a you know, mm-hmm. a, a thought and brings it back, but doesn't always. Bob and Ray, I don't remember what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, it may have been important. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not that important. Just well, it's a whole era that people forget about. It's mm-hmm. Radio comedy, you know. And yeah, speaking of radio, uh, when we listen to uh, Thelonious Monks, uh, ask me now. Do you remember uh, Mr. Clean on the radio, finder and of missing, tracer and finder of lost persons? <laughs> Do you no. remember that theme song? I don't. Well, if you don't, then you would not realize what may have influenced Monk to write Ask Me Now. All right. So a lot of those theme songs that we used to sit on the floor in front of this big radio that had had the speaker that looked like that, and and listen to, and uh, listen to all those theme songs that were coming at us those days. We we could see the picture of the story that was being told on the radio, but in our subconscious we were hearing this music. So I think that all of us were. Were were fortunate enough to hear that and perhaps uh, reiterate that in our own ways, and that may be where "Ask Me Now" came from. Wow! Because when I go back and listen to uh, what I was listening to then and recall what I was listening to then, I feel a great similarity. And Monk is someone that you rub shoulders with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had fortune fortune of good fortune of uh spending some moments together i worked along with him did a few jobs with him as during the time that paul jeffries was in the band the late paul jeffries and uh did a few jobs and uh, prior to that uh I was the one who was uh asked when we were having collected black artists to go and uh go ask Monk uh, whether he would, you know, we're doing these special tribute concerts. I don't know if you were around at that time when we did the concerts to and tribute to Mal Waldron and tribute to uh, Max Roach and tribute to Benny Golson and Sly and Hampton was directing our orchestra and uh, we did so many people. Uh, Farrell Saunders, 
um, you name it. Uh, when we had that organization, we were raising money to give these concerts and, and put the musicians who were in the orchestra to work because we weren't getting calls from the studios mm. as we needed to do in order to make our ends meet. So we were doing those tribute concerts like that. But was anything re- revealed? I mean, Monk seems like such a hard figure to try to, I mean, it's, it's like this archetype of this tricky, trickster kind of guy that, you, you know, I mean, did you... Did did you ever like be like oh okay that now now I get it with him or did, could you understand where he's coming from? Yeah, I did. I yeah. understood where he's coming from, but at the time that he didn't feel like I understood where he was coming from was when Collective Black Artists Organization asked me, "Well, man, you're working with Thelonious Monk. Why don't you ask him to do a special concert for us? Uh, you know." Why don't, why don't you, you're so close to him, you were elected, you ask him. So while we were at the Vanguard in the kitchen, hanging out, at yeah, that was our backstage green room, was an old kitchen at the Village Vanguard, which still exists. Uh, Monk would be dancing around with his several thin bottles, glasses of brandy in one hand, and you know, moving around and dancing from one thing to the other. And I finally got him to stop long enough to say, hey, Monk, have you heard the concerts we've been doing? We would really like you to do a concert with us, and we're doing some real special concerts at Town Hall. Would you do one with him? He wouldn't answer. He would just keep on dancing. (laughs) He would just keep on dancing. And I would ask him again, and and he would he would dance around, throw a jab at me that just went right across my shoulder, <laughs> throw another a jab, and he knew he wasn't going to hit me, but he was trying to say to me, uh, "How dare you ask me to do something like that? Uh, I'm beyond that point, you know." And the one of the one of the answers he says, "Well, he says." Uh, uh, no, I've done that. Uh, he was referring to Hall Overton and the, what he did at the town hall with the big band and stuff. And so he was saying in his own way, I don't ask me to go back to where I was then. I'm, I'm beyond that point. I'm not doing that now. The same thing happened when I, uh, when I, I was asked as a spokesman to go to Miles's house and ask him to do the concert. I had the, had the same experience. He said, hey man, come on in here. Uh, and after he, after I came in there, he began to say, I'm glad to see you, but man, don't ask me to do something like that. I spent all this time trying to get my salary up to a certain point, and now you're asking me to come and do uh, a benefit and do a concert for, for money that, uh, is nowhere near where I've grown to. He says, I know what you're doing. I know everything that you guys have been doing. You asked me to donate some money to you. That's a different story. But don't ask me to, to destroy what I've built in order to support what you're doing, even though I'm in tune with it. And that was during the time we were doing Herbie Hancock and Donald Byrd at the Apollo. Uh, 
And all of us were working hard to make these things happen because it, it, without our effort, it wouldn't have happened because the, the industry had kind of turned away from where we were growing to or where we were going to with the music. And uh, it was up to all of us, I mean, all of the people in the same community with the same aspirations, those who of us who rented a loft and became Ali's Alley and Rivby Studio and Muse Art Studio and uh, The Cooler and all these places that we went to do our work. Uh, the, the artist house we on it. Uh, everything that we, the Endron Lounge that was down in the so, uh, Tribeca area. You know, Everybody worked hard to keep these things happening, to keep the music alive and to make sure that the people, those who are still awake, got a chance to hear it. And those musicians who are still creating got a chance to have their creation critiqued by the listener who would come to these places that we created in order to have a place for this music to happen. And we just talked about earlier, just before you got here, the East Cultural Center was one of those places uh, that uh, we did the same type of thing that we were doing with Collective Black Artists and the East and New, New Muse in Brooklyn. All those were efforts to keep the music alive. The streets, the Jazzmobile with Billy Taylor who created Bring the Music to the People if, if the people won't come to the music. And that's where the floats that came to your neighborhood to make music, you know, came from. And all all the things that we had to do in order to deal with the, keeping the music alive was a part of our job, and that's what we did. And it worked. Yeah. I know a lot of people that learn music from, from Jazzmobile. Mm -hmm. See, those, yeah. those things are important. That is important. And, and here we are today, like, you know, we grew through that area and, and somehow we come together. Now we're reaching out electronically to people in the world who were not there, who don't understand why we're here, what we're talking about, what happened, but they may get some spark right. that will cause them to do some research, listen differently, uh, think differently about uh, the music that, commonly known as jazz yeah it is remarkable right I mean did you did you guys realize or have a sense that this was gonna travel the world in the way it had or did like you know that that in in Japan they, they would be listening to uh, Live at the Village Vanguard, like right now, you know, did that? Did, did uh, it feel know, like history was being made? Did it? Or? Uh, we didn't have a sense that 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 people would be listening at Live at the Village Vanguard now, but we did have a sense that whatever we were doing was important. Uh, above all, it was important to us because we were gifted and and chosen to do it. And uh, we were rewarded for doing it from the way that it made us feel. And, and so, and the way it made other people feel. And uh, we recognize that uh, the, uh, Louis Armstrong was so important as an uh, ambassador with the music that the people all over the world began to like it. <clears throat> Before him, 
there were many others uh, who were doing things that reached many people all over the world. <clears throat> so, so I think that the sense of, of whether or not people would be listening to it uh, today, uh, I don't think that was as important mm -hmm. as really doing what we were doing. Right. And uh, and and then recognizing what we the importance of what we were doing. All right. I don't want to work you too much harder. You want this coconut water? Is that water? Yeah. Coconut water. Yeah, I can there use that. So yeah, this kind of brings up and up like jazz or, or music in general is not known to be the profession with the longest longevity of the people who practice it, but. I'm not sure how old you are, but you've been around a while. So, what is there certain choices you've made that that have allowed you to be, uh, you know, vital and 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 strong and and present? Well, I've I've made some choices that would have didn't allow me to be vital and strong and present over the years, and some of the things I've had to do were not were devastating. But uh, the choices that I've made uh, lately after, during those, those travels, uh, that caused me to become a different person. For example, I changed my diet. I, I stopped eating meat when I realized that that was not in tune with the human body. Yeah. Uh, I, I stopped, uh, you know, changed, I, I, I started becoming healthy and exercising and and uh, meditating and, and realizing that, you know, you, you had to earn the longevity. Uh -huh. and, and that took some work. And those those were things that <clears throat> I'm very fortunate and lucky and thankful that I got those messages to do that. And uh, when I met my second wife, uh, and, and uh, she encouraged me to change and stop doing what I had been doing and all the things I was doing, dissipating, staying up, staying out, uh, consuming the wrong things. That caused me to be fortunate enough to be here at, I'm 82 this year. It's caused me to be able to be here you know, and I think that my whole life experience has been attributing uh, some energies toward that existence, toward this existence. So, uh, wait, 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 around what years did you get into meditation and vegetarianism and stuff like that? Well, that was way back when I when I stopped eating meat. It was. I guess around uh, late fifties. Oh wow! Mm, yeah. uh, and and uh, uh, you know I was overweight and I was uh, breaking out of my clothes and and uh, you know the, my whole body was excreting all these impurities that I was putting into it and I could. I, I lived differently, I felt differently, I smelled differently, uh, my clothes fit differently. And uh, when I changed, 
it, it gave me a, a new demeanor. It gave me a new way of being. And I realized that the energy didn't come from all those things I was consuming, you know. So I changed and I began to meditate. I began to study Eastern philosophies. Uh, I began to to uh, live different life and tune into different things. That, that was as far back as the, the 50s? You lay around 58, uh, 59. Wow. And were, were other, I've, I've heard, you know, still now, for some reason, the, the musicians in this genre called, some people call it jazz, they uh, are drawn to Eastern philosophies and still still talk about, you know, are still interested in, in Taoism and Buddhism and, and all this stuff. So was that something in the air amongst the musicians? I mean, I'm sure Yusuf was definitely down in that path, but were there others? Well, uh, there were many musicians yeah. who, who thought that way. Uh, all over the world, many musicians, as musicians began to grow, I think I can just say that hypothetically, I believe that the science of sound opens certain doors to you and it opens certain understanding and certain realization that you would not deal with if you didn't have that science of sound that you are studying and living and being nurtured by to compare to the your other, your former way of life. So musicians all over the world who, who grow that way and who, who study other musicians who are, are that way realize that there's another way of life than I have been existing or that we're taught is valid. And this is when, uh, during those years, you remember like uh, all of those so-called rock bands and rhythm and blues band, well first rhythm and blues and then rock bands and and uh, folk and and all that music and all those musicians begin to awaken and begin to realize that there was something beyond what they had been taught. And and, and they begin to realize uh, there's, there's something that I have not been a privy to, I've not been aware of, and I have not been taught in my studies. And these uh, musicians or this music or this society is opening something new to me. And uh, if when you were young, uh, hopefully, the, when you were around during those times of the 60s and the late 50s. I don't know how old you are. Oh, I missed all that. I was uh, born see, in 77. Well, then you remember when uh, when the who, you remember Kent State? I'm aware of all that stuff. Okay. I wasn't alive during the okay. time. Of course, Kent well, State. Kent, yeah. And you remember the Hoover administration. You remember all those things with... Sure. With the Panther Party, remember the mm -hmm. studies of all those institutions and what the things that people were learning, the creation. We had to work hard to get music accepted by the academia, uh, which is why we're here today. Right. Uh, we had to to go through all those changes. Meanwhile, folks who were witnessing what we went through in those days looked over and said, hey, uh, there's something to this. We better start looking into this lest we miss the boat. And uh, consequently, things changed during the Vietnam War, during the Korean War, uh, during the 
the all the political movements that doing the 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 uh all the movements that came along with the folk uh with the so-called hippies and the young white kids as well as the aware black kids the young black kids uh the young black organizations and people who were living and growing and giving knowledge to the people that they hadn't gotten before became uh, something that the governments didn't like. And that's why we had Kent State. That's why we had the Hoover administration. That's why we had the destruction of the Panther Party. Uh, that's why we had all, all of those things. That's why we had uh, musicians who said, I want to do it this way. I want to do it, say something. We had poets, writers, and so forth who are doing, creating a different way of being. And uh, that that's, uh, to me, one of my, the gifts that I have been given is the ability to turn away from uh, what was really leading me down a path that wasn't positive and turning towards something that was quite positive. Knowing uh, from listening to my own body, my own self, my own psych, that uh, there's something positive and best, good about the way that you're developing now. Uh, all, this, all this you're bringing up somehow leads me to something that I wanted to make sure we touched on because it, it's kind of like a, a, a cultural like touchstone or something like that. Uh, the, the Pharaoh Sanders Karma album seems to be like, uh, you know, it kind of, it, 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 it embodied a certain time and, and sound and, and, and you were a big part of that. I mean, that, that baseline on the creator has a master plan is, is, is that's the thing. So, um, by that point, well, first of all, it seems like you were in the, seems like the the what they call jazz musicians it was always like 10 years ahead of everything else like even you getting into the vegetarianism 10 years before it starts going you know people get interested in in san francisco you know i'm asking <laughs> i'm bringing up a bunch of different questions so you can answer what you want but i would like to hear a, uh well one it did seem that so much that that sparked, say, what Miles Davis did in Kind of Blue became the modal jazz, uh, modal rock music of, of Grateful Dead or All My Brothers. So there, it seemed like you guys and your, your community was on the, the cutting edge of where America and, and other people around the world, their consciousness was going to end up. the music you say well the music but also what the ideas yeah I think I mean that's to me that's the evolution of the species Mm -hmm. and and uh, it happened uh, many things happened even before us that uh, we didn't acknowledge Uh, there are many things that happened in in the historic in history that were not acknowledged that uh, the species was constantly evolving, constantly growing, and uh, those who were awake and aware and ambitious were doing things and creating things that satisfied their existence. 
And the world simply had to acknowledge it or recognize it or disguard it or not recognize it in some cases. Right. And of course, like like we who were doing that, we're not going to accept the fact that uh, what we believe in is not acceptable and not valid. So we found ways to to bring it out and for those who could deal with it. Uh, I maybe I should wait until we finish this thing but to to mention it. Oh go ahead. I don't know if you remember this uh, when you were on the show at KCR. Mm-hmm. I had a bandage over my right eye cuz I had been uh jumped on the on the train. Really? Yeah. And it was actually I, I was pretty happy with the way it it all went down because mm-hmm. I, I I I got my stuff back. But well, you um, did. yeah, good, good. But then you told me some horrible story, man. That because I was all bloodied up, <laughs> and you said uptown you got bloodied up, or so, I think you were mugged or something like that. Yeah, and yeah, you went to I the... got jumped by some some drunk coming out of a party. And uh, I was, it was snowing or something. I was walking up from the subway. And I believe it was New Year's party or something. And uh, they were turning out, all the people were turning out this party. And those who didn't have the dates that they wanted uh, probably were looking for somebody to jump on. So uh, as I was walking up, First, it was a lady who fell down in front of me. One of the ladies with the tight skirts and on fell down in front of me and dropped her purse. And I, I st- <clears throat> stopped and helped her pick it up. Are you okay? She said, yes, go on. So I went my way. And when I'm walking up toward my crib from 137th Street, uh, or maybe I had parked the car or something. I don't remember which, what it was, but I was walking up to the crib. I must have parked the car because I was below 136th Street then. And and uh, I was walking toward, I was just passing the 137th Street subway station, and I heard somebody running up behind me. I didn't pay any mind because people are always running to catch the bus or catch the subway or something. And I looked over my shoulder, and is I saw a guy running toward me, swinging, and I think it was two of them, uh, and and one of them hit me, knocked me down, and had a brass knuckle or a ring or something that, that I still have the scar, and uh, you know I I was more concerned with saving myself and my belongings, my bag and so forth, then I was concerned with trying to prove or anything. I couldn't prove anything. I'm an older person with these young, drunken dudes coming out of cabaret. So uh, that, that happened, and I went up the street to tell the police what happened, and they sped right by me, wouldn't stop, you know. <clears throat> so then I went home and I uh, thought about what it could have been had I been carrying a you know, weapon or something. 
I could have been the one who would be persecuted because I would have responded differently. You know. <clears throat> well, there's that. I mean, the part that really stuck with me is that, you know, the whole we live in two Americas things. Yeah. You know, and... Yeah. Two. And the fact that, you know, after all you've lived, how all you've contributed to this society, that the cops would just drive by when you're bloodied up. Yeah. They, 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 they are about doing what they do, and they may not have been positive. They may not have been really out to do the best thing for the people. They, they were just out, you know. Yeah. But it seems like there's a takes a certain type of tranquility. Maybe not, it's not the word, but like you got you got to be kind of philosophical, right, to be able to to make your way through the world and know know that there's this discrimination and racism and that it's, it's built into the fabric. Like the, you, you you have to come up with a way to live with that other than bitterness and anger. Mm, well, hey, what that's what my people have had to do for centuries. Right. You know, otherwise we, we would not be able to deal with this situation as we have. You know. On the whole, would you say there's been some progress since the 50s? As the people, as far as the as people. As far as that, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think there's been some progress. Uh, I don't think everybody has progressed, but there has been some progress because, uh, you know, the, the life is, is continuing and, and still evolving. There are still some great things happening in the world. It's, uh, you know... And a lot of it goes unnoticed. A lot of the things that have happened uh, have not been you know, rewarded, have not been noticed. But uh, there has been some progress. People have grown to be a little bit more positive and more sensible in understanding that the, the, all those negative ideals are not going to last. The truth is going to prevail. I think it has to. And it may not be in our lifetime, but it has to prevail. So one thing that's blowing my mind is like I I just went over to uh, Jeff Tane Watts' house and I asked him, he has a big TV, and I said, do you, pra do you watch TV while you practice? And he said, hell yeah! And I keep meeting these people that uh, maybe keep a baseball game on while they practice, maybe with the sound off or something like that. And I always thought it was all about being present, present, present. And then I keep meeting great musicians <laughs> who seem to be doing the opposite, at least in practice. So I was, I was very curious, like, where, what, what do you think? your mind should be on when you're playing or when you're practicing? Well, it, it depends on where you are at the moment. I don't think that 
uh, having a baseball game. Says some people who live by the baseball. They know everybody's average. They know everything. They they study that. They, they wouldn't miss a game. Wouldn't miss a Sunday when the basketball is happening. Tournaments are on. And there are some people who don't uh, need that uh, for their existence. I'm I'm one of those people who. Who I sure I enjoy the base—not baseball, but basketball, football—and uh, I enjoy tennis. I enjoy watching those things, but uh, that's not something I want to have on while I'm practicing. I'm not—I'm not trying to think about both of those things. But some people are multitask people. They yeah. can do that. They can listen to the baseball with one part of the, the or the sports. I'll say with one part of their brain. They can and deal with the music with another part of their brain. That's another being, and there are different strokes. Different right. Well, has this ever happened to you? Because it happens to me. I'm playing music and I think, "Wow, I'm really getting it," and that's when I mess up. You know, <laughs> like is there is there like certain mental uh, uh, like spaces that one should well, avoid you while you're playing? What do you mean when you say that's when I mess up? Well, yeah, because uh, it's like. Becoming that's that's when the consciousness gets in the way, you know what I mean? Like, it like I could be keeping great time, and if I think, "Wow, I'm keeping really great time," that that that's not gonna help. That, that, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. But <laughs> that's funny. Uh, you know, the, I always say to my students, the, "The more I learn, the more I learn. I don't know." Uh-huh. Uh huh. And that goes all the way back to when I started reading the yoga books and studying Hindu philosophy. Mm-hmm. And they used to teach me uh, when you when you develop to a point and you rise above a certain plane, uh, the obstacles were, that were in front of you when you couldn't see as you rise and you de- evolve, those obstacles are removed and you can see much further uh, in in the future, so and I think the more you learn as you rise, the more you can see that you don't know, <laughs> you know, and I think that's that's a part of of what we all go through as as artists, you know. Mm-hmm. So do you have one thing like when you're playing? Do you is there something that you like to rest your mind on? Like, are you like, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tune into this, into the drummer, like, or it's something like that. Is it, no. is there a place you like to go or, or? No, no, it's not to you. Well, it depends on the circumstance. You know, what you're talking about is like, uh, you, you tune into, if you're making music with a group, you're tuning into everybody. Mm-hmm. You have to listen to everything that's happening, and what you do is in the, according to what's happening around you. You know, unless you are sitting down like a secretary taking dictation and just reading the notes and just deciding I'm going to play this the way right. that it's written so that it will sound like the composer wants it to sound. But if you're improvising or if you're creating, then uh, you have to tune into what's around you, and you have to make your music accordingly, like... Uh, like I could not possibly uh, play with Elvin Jones the same way I played with Art Blakey. 
You know, that's, that just doesn't happen. Uh, that, uh, they're two different characters. Their feeling about the music is different. Their ideas, the way they are inspired, what they're inspired by, or what they're uh, disturbed by, or how they relate to the beat, the distance they have from one impact to the next is different according to who they are as an individual. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All those all those things d- depend on what we perform. Uh, you know, ha- after having worked with <clears throat> with uh, uh, with John Coltrane, who who would say, uh, "You got to bring something to, to the beach besides sand." Uh, you know, I I don't want you to do the same thing that Elvin Jones is doing. Uh, and I thought that was hip because I had been working with Roy Haynes for so long and it turned out that Roy is a predecessor of Elvin and and Elvin's grows out of Roy. Consequently, when I got that job, I found myself doing things uh, that were the same things that Elvin was doing. I was landing at the same milestone. And John out front, he was listening to that, and he said, "No, that's not happening." You know, he said, uh, "Don't, don't, don't allow yourself to to think that uh, are you doing something hip if you if you're making the same statement as somebody else in the band. That's negative. I want you to bring something to the beast besides saying, wow. you know. So, so I had to learn what he meant by that." When he said, uh, you're going to turn our quartet into a trio. <laughs> you know, I had to learn what he meant by that and how serious that was. Yeah. You know, even though he, he, he said it matter-of-factly, you know, but he was very serious in the way that he expressed that. In other words, uh, what are you doing to add to the music? Right. You know? Do you have any memories of the Africa Brass sec- uh, session? It was a great session. A lot of great people in the studio. A lot of great music. A lot of beautiful sounds. Watch Eric, uh, you know, take McCoy's voices and, and put it down for the for the sections. Uh, watch the way John uh, pulled the energies together and chose he wanted to listen to this person, that person. Something he heard Paul on, he told me to move over and let Paul play this track. Some things that he went over again. Uh, it, was, it was great. A lot of great music. I don't think I have any of that stuff with me. Yeah. I mean, Dalphy... So on some of those recordings, it's like he, he really learned Coltrane's language and then was able to incorporate his own his own thoughts and his own ideas and his own flavor. I mean, Yeah, well, he, Duffy and John were very close. They spent a lot of time in uh, John's house. And uh, they studied a lot together. They talked a lot together. And, and Dolphy was one of those persons who was never going to lose himself in in strife. He's all he was a very heavy 
individual as far as his music was concerned. And uh, even though he respected John, he was always going to bring himself to. That's what he came with to us with. I, I was just looking at his name, right? Uh, have you heard this? Uh, this is what uh, was just put together uh, no, by no. Zev Feldman. Have you, that's a project that he oh, did. Oh, wow. Final thing, because I really appreciate. It, by the way, you're very uh, generous with your time. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to wrap it yeah. up now because I know that people are wondering what the hell happened to me. <laughs> um, so uh, maybe a quick, a quick, quick thoughts on all these great different drummers that you've interacted with. Is that too much? Yeah, I okay, mean, that's, that's too much. That's that's just a lot. That's, that's e- a whole thing. Everybody has their own their own style, and right. I, I've been fortunate enough to be around with a lot of different drummers. Yeah. All right. Another time. You know, yeah. Some other time <laughs> we'll deal with that. All uh, right. Well, uh, maybe just lastly, just maybe you could just tell us uh, what you love about uh, how you're spending your days now. Put you know, contributing so much with the education and, you know, what, 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 what's, what's the thing you're most excited about right now? Besides going to sleep when this is over. No, that, <laughs> not, not so much about that. Uh, one thing I'm happy about is that I've been able to remain here and stay in touch with new creation, new minds, as we heard at the just last concert, and uh, be in touch with, with people who are looking forward to growing in, in the direction that we need soldiers to grow in, and uh, to who can understand what they're dealing with uh, embracing the science of sound and how important their mission is. I'm, I feel good about being here to try to spread that word to as many people whose ears are open enough to accept it. And I feel fortunate to to uh, be on the planet while my links to eternity, like that young lady there who was the first black Juliet in the Shakespeare Company and who is the child of my second wife and myself, and we're both friends. We've and we're still working on one another's behalf. Uh, uh, I feel fortunate that I've, I've I've been given the gift to to uh, to receive uh, this talent that's been given to me in this. Uh, this uh, life to to do what I've been ordained to do. Well, thanks for all, for all you've contributed, and thanks for taking the time. I I learned a lot, man, and uh, just got to put it to practice. Maybe maybe I'll cut down on the meat. 
<laughs> that might help. It's tough, man. East Flatbush, they got the jerk chicken. It's not easy. Oh, oh I didn't say I cut down on fowl. I, I, still, oh, okay. eat, I still eat fish and fowl. Oh, okay. okay. I, I stopped eating meat. Okay, the red meat. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not supposed to eat salmon because that's considered red meat of the sea. Interesting. And, uh, But I don't eat it often, but I still love it. All so, right. I mean, I'm not completely cured. <laughs> and my daughter is saying, Daddy, I'm, ve- I'm vegan. Don't you realize you can't offer me that now? <laughs> you know, so she and my wife have become vegan. So when we go out to eat, I have to choose a different menu than they choose. All right. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Appreciate it.